We welcome you to the media ministry of Denton Bible Church. In memory of Britain's greatest hero, one Horatio Nelson stands a 170-foot-tall Corinthian column in Trafalgar Square, England. The rise of Nelson's military stardom directly corresponds with the rise of British naval supremacy. In fact, you don't get one without the other. His naval achievements in the early 1800s solidified British naval superiority for the next 100 years until the beginning of World War I. As in always the case in military, everything rises and falls with leadership. And Nelson truly was a legendary figure. It was said that he killed a polar bear in mortal combat, that he lost both an eye and an arm in two different military campaigns. However, he was notorious and even hated for disobeying orders. Once a superior officer signaled from another ship not to engage the enemy, and Nelson pulled the telescope up to his blind eye and said he didn't see the signal. From which, by the way, we get the phrase to turn a blind eye. But Nelson's greatest achievement was preventing Napoleon's dominating land force from ever reaching British shores. Outnumbered and outgunned, he defeated the French and Spanish fleet at the Cape of Trafalgar that was to carry Napoleon's army to England. And his plan involved all his captains keeping their composure and sailing directly into the enemy fleet. Now this would mean that they would take a full broadside hit before ever getting off a shot. His second in command, it was said, coolly ate an apple while being raked on both sides by cannon fire. Nelson himself wore a coat bedazzled with his military stars of achievement so that not only his men could see him, but so that the enemy could see him from afar. He wanted his men to see his confidence in the midst of battle because he knew victory would either rise or fall with him. And he was right, and he was victorious. It seems everything in life either rises or falls with good or bad leadership. Nations rise and fall with good or bad leadership. Generations rise or fall with leadership. Businesses, sports teams, churches rise and fall with leadership. Your family will rise or fall with its leadership. And guess what? You will rise or fall with your leadership. And that is why leadership is so important to us. We all need good leadership. But do you know that every Christian is a leader? Did you know that every Christian man, every Christian woman, every Christian boy, every Christian girl is called to be a leader in some form, some fashion, and to a degree? If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are a leader because you are following the king, leading by example what that looks like and calling other people to follow him. How are you doing? How are you leading? How are you leading as a man? How are you leading as a woman? How are you leading as a husband? 
How are you leading as a mother, as a wife, as a single mother, as a single father? How are you leading as a young man, as a young woman, as a teenager, as a young adult? How are you leading? If everything either rises or falls with leadership, I wonder what God has to say on the subject. Well, today, that's what we're going to see in Judges chapter 2. So please go ahead and open up your Bibles to Judges chapter 2. Now, if I was to give this sermon a title, I would call it Lessons in Leadership, Your Turn. Lessons in Leadership, Your Turn. And here's what we're going to see. If you don't have your sermon notes, uh, there's a slide that should pop up behind me. And we're going to see an example of a faithful leader. We're gonna see an example of a failed, I'm sorry, an example of a faithful generation, an example of a failed generation, and an example of a faithful leader. A faithful generation, a failed generation, and a faithful leader. Now the, book, the books of Exodus, Joshua, and Judges chronologically follow one another. In the book of Exodus, Moses leads God's, leads God's people out of Egypt through the wilderness and to the border of the promised land. The torch passes from Moses to Joshua and Joshua leads God's people into the promised land and begins to conquer it just as God had promised Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. But when the torch passes from Joshua in the book of Judges, we learn why that generation failed to conquer it. Because everything rises or falls with leadership. Now, I have the privilege of speaking to everyone this morning, but I'm especially speaking to my own generation. If you are a millennial, I'm especially speaking to you. Now, Judges begins the same way the book of Joshua began, with the passing of the torch. Now, just listen to the phraseology of, Judge, of Joshua chapter 1, verse 1. Now, it came about after the death of Moses, dot, 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 Joshua. Now listen to how Judges chapter one, verse one begins. Now it came about after the death of Joshua. But guess what? There's no automatic successor. So in verse one, the sons of Israel inquired of the Lord saying, who shall go up for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? Who is going to lead us into God's promised blessing? And so the question is, who in this next generation after Joshua is going to take the torch and lead Israel? And so the book of Judges is primarily about leadership. Who's going to lead like Moses? Who's going to lead like Joshua? And we really don't get leaders like them again in biblical history until the time of David. But we get some good ones in between. Now in Judges, there are two introductions to the book. We call them prologues, and they correspond to the two conclusions of the book, epilogues. And we're going to begin by looking at prologue number two in chapter two, verse six. And the first thing I want us to see is the success of this first generation. Verse six, Joshua had dismissed the people, the sons, and the sons of Israel went each to his inheritance. Jump down to verse nine. And they buried him, that's Joshua, in the territory of his inheritance. So the first thing we see is that upon entering into the promised land, 
each tribe successfully departs to his inheritance to possess it. And the second thing we see is that Joshua dies in his inheritance. The implication being both he and his generation were successful. The only problem is, is they ran out of life. And we see why God blessed them with success. In verse seven, the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua. So under Joshua's leadership, God's people are faithful to serve him. And even after Joshua dies, that generation in verse seven served God all the days of the elders who survived Joshua. So what, this generation was not just faithful during Joshua's lifetime, but his legacy outlives him. His generation after his death remains faithful to serve God. Now this is likely the greatest generation in Israel's history. We'd call them the sons of liberty, like in the American Revolution, or, or the greatest generation like in World War II. And the reason why they are the greatest is because they are faithful. Faithfulness equals greatness. And the reason why they are faithful is found at the end of verse seven. They, serve, they had seen Israel, they had seen, literally that word seen is the word witnessed all the great work of the Lord which he had done for Israel. In other words, because this generation had experienced God firsthand, they responded in faithful obedience back to God. Now observe the repetition of the word all. We have a generation that served the Lord all the days of Joshua. This generation served the Lord all the days after Joshua because this generation had experienced all the great works of God. When I first started dating, courting my now wife, Raven, I was concerned that her parents would not accept me. I had a rough past. Uh, there was an age gap. I wasn't established. I had a long list of reasons why neither, they, neither you nor they should let me date their daughter. But then I actually met them. And they were welcoming, they were courteous, they were generous, they let me date their daughter, they were hospitable, they would invite me over every day for dinner and make me play board games afterwards. They forced me to pet their cat. They compelled me to give them hugs when I left and they would not let me, they would not let me leave without saying goodbye. And if I did, I heard about it the next time. And the more that I experienced them, the more that I continued to go and be around their generosity and their kindness and their love and their trust toward me, the more I was compelled to respond in such a way that honored their daughter. In a more complex but similar way, the same is true in your relationship with God. As you continue to go to God and as you experience God's attributes, his goodness, his kindness, his generosity, his love, as you experience and learn that God has more concern for you than you do for yourself, though you don't realize it, as you experience that God is a lot more concerned about your future than you are, though you don't realize it, as you experience and learn these things, the more you will faithfully respond back to God. 
How are you growing in your personal relationship with God? Jesus said, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast of his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast of his might, let not the rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he knows and understands me. How are you growing? What steps are you taking to grow in your knowledge of God so that you can experience his works in his way, and his ways and respond faithfully back to him? Could you tell me how you're doing that? Could you tell your neighbor how you're doing that? Well, this example of this faithful generation that served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days after Joshua, verse 10, all that generation were gathered to their fathers. They're gone. They're off the scene. Question, how many generations does it take to fall from greatness and plummet into failure? Answer, one. The failed generation, verse 10. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. Now notice what is absent in this next generation that was present with the previous generation. There is an absence of the verb witnessed, and there's an absence of the adjective great. This next generation had not personally witnessed God act, and consequentially were experientially unaware of his greatness. Notice something else. They did not know the Lord. The word know is the word yada, and it means knowledge through experience. It's not that they were intellectually unaware of God, but had to receive it by faith. And the result is seen in verses 11 through 13, where we get this interesting structure. In verse 11, we get a summary statement. The sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. Then we get our first couplet of verbs. They served the Baals and they forsook the Lord. And you jump down to 13 and we get our second couplet of verbs. But this time these verbs are switched. They forsook and served. So we have they served, forsook, forsook, served. We have a chiasm. And in between in verse 12, we find a, cup, a triplet of verbs where the emphasis is seen. And here's the emphasis. They followed other gods, they bowed themselves down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. Thus, we now have an example of a failed generation. Because God is in covenant relationship with his people, they, he is involved with them, and they are involved with him. He, God, is involved with the lives of his people, amen? And guess what? You are involved with the life of God. He is the living God. And this is something we as a church have to wake up to. That God has an agenda for human history. And God is accomplishing his agenda for history primarily through his covenant people. That's you, the church. God is accomplishing history through us. 
And that is why it is so important to attach yourself to your church. Because you've got a choice to be a part of it or not. And it is a privilege to be used by God to accomplish his purposes. And guess what? He doesn't need you. <laughs> he doesn't need me. And he's gonna accomplish his purpose one way or the other. And when his covenant people act unfaithful, he disciplines their unfaithfulness. And in verse 14, he gives them into the hands of their enemies. Verse 15, wherever they went, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil. Wherever they went, whenever they went to the grocery store, guess what? Whenever they went to drop off the kids, guess what? Whenever they went to practice, whenever they went to work, whenever they were hanging out, guess what? The hand of the Lord was against them. Now, from the people's perspective, it probably just looked like a bit of bad luck. Man, this pandemic's getting old. Man, the economy's not looking too good. Things just don't seem to be looking that good. But in reality, God had removed his hand of blessing from their lives. Now get this, don't miss this. If God is against you, it does not matter what you have going for you. But don't miss this either. If God is for you, it doesn't matter who's against you. And what makes the difference is seen in verse 17b, jump down there. They turned aside quickly from the way in which their fathers had walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord. Verse 20, God speaking here. Because this nation has transgressed my covenant, the Mosaic covenant, which I commanded their fathers and has not listened to my voice. Listen is the word Shema, and it's the same word translated as obey. So what does God do? In verse 22, he tests them to see if they will keep the way of the Lord to walk in it. In other words, God's testing them if they are going to publicly live out their faith. I don't know if you know this, but they're no secret agent Christians. They're no undercover Christians. We are all called to publicly live out our faith, to walk in the ways of the Lord. And so in chapter three, verse four, because they don't do this, God allowed the nations to oppress them. This is one of the consequences seen in the Mosaic covenant for an unfaithful generation in Deuteronomy chapter 28. Why does God allow this to happen to them? For testing Israel to find out if they would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he had commanded their fathers through Moses. So that which makes the difference is determined by their alignment under the word of God. Will they obey God or not? A few weeks ago, I borrowed Brent Bowen's chainsaw because a huge limb had fell in my backyard and I wanted to cut it up into logs to fit into my fire pit. So I cut one log as the standard log that would fit into my fire pit so all the other logs measured off this standard log would fit as well. I kind of got lazy as I was cutting along and the logs started piling up around my feet. And so I just kicked that, all those logs along with the standard log out of the way. You know what I'm talking about, you did this too. 
And so I thought, I can see that log over there. I'll just get kind of close. And I used the next cut log as the new standard for the logs that would come after that. Well, guess what happened? The logs started piling up around my feet again, and I just kicked them away and made a new standard log. Well, when I went to pile all the logs together into a nice, neat pile, they weren't that nice and neat. In fact, they progressively worsened the further along I went. You see, this is the effect of an ever-changing standard. If you are a generation who sticks to the unchanging standard of a God's unchanging word, you will be a generation that rubs off on everything around you. You will be a generation that changes everything around you. But if you are a generation whose standard is constantly changing, if your standard is set by the general consensus, if your standard is set by your favorite influencer buying up all their merch, if your standard is set by acceptance, then everyone else is rubbing off on you. And because your standard's constantly changing, you're constantly changing and will leave no permanent impact and will be wasting your life. And if you are in God's covenant people through Jesus Christ, God will do whatever it takes to align you to his standard. Well, in chapter three, verses seven through 11, we see the general pattern of the entire book of Judges. It was actually seen in chapter two, verses 16 through 19. Israel sins in verse seven. The Lord disciplines Israel in verse eight. The Lord responds to Israel's cry. That's all, all God will always respond to your cry. The Lord energizes a judge in verse 10. He will raise somebody up. And in verse 11, peace is restored and the judge dies. But guess what? The cycle will continue. Israel will sin again and repeat. And thus judges, like society, is a downward spiral. Now there's a bit of irony here. The Lord, whom this next generation is called to serve, will actually give this next generation into the hands of a king whose name is doubly wicked to serve him. And this is when we'll get the rise of the first major judge. In the book of Judges, there's major judges and minor judges. And here we get the rise of the first major judge in verse nine. The sons of Israel cried to the Lord and the Lord raised up a deliverer for the sons of Israel to deliver them. Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. Now, Othniel was alive during the time of Joshua, but he is a part of the next generation. If you recall back in chapter two, verse 10, all of Joshua's generation died. And he is described as Caleb's younger relative. So he is identified with the next generation. But unlike his unfaithful generation, who in chapter three, verse six, married outside the covenant people, Othniel, back in chapter one, married within the covenant people. So he is faithful to God. In fact, Othniel will be the standard from which all the other judges are measured. They all now have to measure up to him. Why? Because he is the example of a faithful leader. Point number three. And it's interesting that 
out of all the major judges, his story is the shortest story. In fact, it's presented as just matter of fact, just the facts. Here they are. Verse 10, the spirit of the Lord came upon him and he judged Israel. When he went out to war, the Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim into king of Mesopotamia, that's Mr. Doubly Wicked, into his hands so that he prevailed over Cushan Rishathim. Then the land had rest for 40 years. Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. Now, Othniel is the only major judge described as not having any sort of character deficiencies or any strange or weird idiosyncrasies. Of all the major judges that follow him, something's always given that calls them into, that makes them a little suspect. You have Ehud's left-handedness. It's always slimy in the Bible. You have Barak's timidity. You have Gideon's indecision. You have Jephthah's pedigree. He was the son of a prostitute. And then you have Samson's promiscuity, but not Othniel. Nothing, nothing distracts the reader from the clear message of God's intervention through this faithful leader. He unhesitatingly takes hold of God's promised blessing even when the challenge was great. Will you? And as a result, there is a renaissance. Israel is restored back to the place at the conclusion of Joshua's death. In other words, equilibrium is restored because there's been a reformation back to the word of God. Othniel follows in the footsteps of the previous faithful generation. Notice something else. There are three individuals mentioned by name in verses seven through 11. You have Kushan Rishathaim mentioned twice. Corresponding to the doubly wicked is the honorable Othniel mentioned twice. But in just those five verses, guess what? Yahweh the Lord is mentioned seven times. Nowhere else in the entire book of Judges does God permeate so fully as he does in the story of Othniel. This is how every leader should be remembered. He eschews self-aggrandizement. He rejects faithlessness. He refuses to be fearful and he takes a stand to obey God's word. Why? Because it was his turn to do so. Because it was his turn to do so. Perhaps, church, this is the best kind of leader. Perhaps, church, we need more leaders like this. Perhaps, church, this is what every generation and every leader is called to look like. Just a man who is not afraid to set things straight. Just a man who zealously strives after God. One who is not afraid to do battle in the power that God provides. One who, when it's his turn, doesn't seek to draw attention to himself, but to glorify God, 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 God. This is an example of a faithful leader. In the 1990 film, Glory, about the uh, historical drama about the Civil War where the first black division fight for the Union. 
Denzel Washington, we'll call him the millennial. You can laugh at that. And Denzel, well, he's had it worse than everyone else, and so he's just mad. He's mad at everybody. He's not just mad at the white guys, he's mad at the black guys too. And Morgan Freeman, we'll call him the previous generation. Morgan Freeman has enough of it. And so he goes up to Denzel and backhands this millennial. And he says, who are you? So angry that you just wanna run around and fight everybody because you've been whipped and chased by hounds? That's not living, but that ain't dying either. And dying's what these white boys have been doing for three years now, dying for the thousands, dying for you, fool. And I know, because all the while, I'm digging their graves, and I'm asking myself, Lord, Lord, when's it gonna be our time? And he looks Denzel in the eye and he says, our times are coming. Our times are coming when we're gonna have to ante up and kick in, kick in like men, like men. <laughs> well, Denzel, our times are coming. Our time's here. Who's gonna ante up? Who's gonna kick in? You? Who's gonna kick in? Times are coming. It's time to kick in. On that note, let's put all this together. Joshua's generation was an example of the greatest generation because they experienced God and responded faithfully in obedience to his word. God disciplines the next generation because they failed to hold to the standard of God's word and the world rubbed off on them instead of them on the world. God raises up Othniel from the next generation who was an example leader because he followed in the footsteps of the previous generation. In Acts chapter seven, Stephen is standing before the Sanhedrin recounting biblical history. And he says, our fathers had the tabernacle of testimony in the wilderness. And just as he who spoke to Moses directed him, our fathers, having received it in their turn, brought it in to the land to conquer it, just as God had given it to him. Having received it in their turn. Every generation is given a turn. Every generation is given a chance to lead. Every generation receives what the previous generation left them. And every generation will either rise or fall, be faithful or fail. Because everything rises or falls with leadership. Dr. Hannah the legendary DTS professor who I took for church history used to always say, he would say, 
Young people, if you would just spend five minutes a day in the word, your life would be changed. And then he would follow that statement with, it's not the time, it's the word. That church is how you become a faithful generation. That church is how you experience God through his word. So be a faithful generation. Experience God through his word. I'm gonna call it like I see it. Every week I'm watching examples of a great generation go. Every week I'm seeing faithful men and women go to be with the Lord. So I've got a question for my millennial generation. Will you arise and complete what the previous generation started? Will you ante up, will you kick in when it's your turn? It's your turn. Be an example generation. Experience God through his word. Five minutes a day. Five minutes a day. It's not the time. It's the word. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have chosen to disclose yourself to us. Only out of your mercy and out of your kindness have you revealed and made yourself known. We thank you for our King and our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the living word, who is the only one who has perfectly lived out obediently the written word. But we thank you that you provide the ability to live according to your standard, and you provide the mercy and the forgiveness when we fail. But Lord, you never leave us down, you always call us up. And so I pray for every man and woman in this building that you would solidify in their heart that they are called to be a leader and they are called to lead in this generation. And I pray that you would raise up a generation of faithful men and of faithful women who are not afraid to take a stand for your word. And I pray, God, that we would be humble, that we would not seek to draw attention to ourselves, but to glorify God. We thank you, Lord. We thank you, Lord. Hallelujah. In Jesus' name. Amen.